two groups of, again, mostly men who have very different ideas, a lot of cognitive diversity, a lot of cognitive friction, maybe not as much as they ought to have, but they have ingredients there to come up with third options. And they are bent on destroying each other and unwilling to, it's seen as this great sin if you change your mind. You know, you get unelected and everyone's afraid to be proven wrong, even though that's the way we make progress is when we prove ourselves wrong. CEOs on average read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high-achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep learning and knowledge, and just by listening to this podcast, you are working toward your goals every single day. If you are ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better every single day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at MentorBox.com today. There you'll find a lesson from today's guest, Shane Snow. Shane is a founder of leading marketing content company Contently and the author of Dream Teams, working together without falling apart. As a journalist, Shane has contributed to The New Yorker, Washington Post, and more, and been awarded severally for his work. In this discussion, Shane and I, well, we really went for it. We brought politics, philosophy, life, and death to the fore, and we dared to ask the question, what place do these topics have in business and social culture? Quick warning, we talk about the death penalty and abortion. We avoided getting into the visceral specifics of these acts and focused more on the debate surrounding them, but we do acknowledge that this conversation could benefit from other parties' involvement. From this point on, I'll be sure to invite anybody who really has strong thoughts about these topics to contribute to this conversation, and we'll see if we can mastermind some grand solutions here. For now, enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to the MentorBox podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, content coordinator of MentorBox, and today I'm with Shane Snow. He is the author of Dream Teams, a new book, as well as a couple others, and the original founder of Contently. Shane, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to have you here today. Hey, I'm happy to be here. So it's been a long time coming, guys. We are going to dive pretty deep today. It finally happened. We talked about morality and the cosmos and political stances and division these days, and we want to put it in a podcast. So today, Shane and I are going to really dig into it. So strap your seatbelts on. It's going to get it's going to get rocky, but it's going to be fun. Are you ready, Shane? I am ready for this. Yeah. <laughs> so first of all, I want to talk about um, Dream Teams. You mentioned in the book and in the workshops that you've done for us today that it's important to think about culture ad as opposed to culture fit, something that Annie Duke, or no, sorry, not Annie Duke, we talked about Annie Duke as well, but something that Emily Chang in Brotopia advocates for. And that's really significant because this idea of company culture, you mentioned was kind of developed in the 70s through some research, has since been more or less refuted as not being great for productivity. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so the idea, the intention, right, behind 
having a great culture. That's that's nice, right? Culture is what makes life awesome. Comfort. Comforting. I associate it with that. Right. So in the 70s, they did these research studies that basically concluded that people who work together with people who have similar personalities feel happier at work. And we, over the next 40 years, conflated that with you know, happiness and feeling comfortable at work with being productive and being innovative. And it turns out that those two things, those things are not actually correlated at all. You can be happy at work and extremely unproductive. And in fact, a lot of the things that we've sort of taken for granted as best practice in business, actually to make a comfortable environment are at odds with an innovative environment. And so this manifests in all sorts of things. You know, when we talked earlier, we were talking about the math of synergy, just how, you know, culture add and and different kinds of people can add up to a smarter group than its smartest member. But what happens is in our quest to make a great group, we often squash the very differences and the discomfort and the friction, the intellectual cognitive differences that actually can allow that group to move forward. So it's uh, it's sort of this paradox of if we follow everything that we've been told about what it means to make a great group, half of that is wrong. And this leads us to actually some of these scenarios like Emily Chang talks about, where we have these companies who are built, made by people who are fairly similar that then suddenly become toxic for other people to be part of, but also make worse decisions because they don't have the breadth of perspectives that they need in order to to recognize their own blind spots. Mm -hmm. When I think about this discussion, it comes down to the origin of the institutions for me. And we talked about this at length earlier. And a lot of these institutions, be it tech or academia, in Annie Duke's case, she was the psychologist, um, they were developed by a, a uniform kind of person, especially in America. It was largely uh, men, white men even. And it also reflected a certain class. And even time, in geographically smaller than just America too, right? It's yeah. white men in certain pockets at certain universities that grew up in a certain generation, right? It goes even mm-hmm. even deeper than, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's who developed these institutions. And Emily Chang talks a lot about that. And now we're coming into a pretty serious paradigmatic awareness of that. That's what Carol Sanford talks about in her book, The Regenerative Business, is moving to a paradigm of awareness that every single person has a different perspective on how they enter into something. And you talk about that in Dream Teams and in the workshop we just did as well. Can you talk about perspectives and heuristics for a little bit? Sure. So for a long time, we've started to change this narrative around uh, who we're working together. We used to say, let's all be the same. Let's be as similar as possible so that we can be happy and, and work together. We realized that this creates sort of a justice problem and a moral problem. And so the talking point that a lot of organizations have now is we need diversity. And in America, when they say diversity, they're saying race, but they're too scared to say race uh, or gender. They're too scared to say those things. So what we have kind of had or what we've become is this society that is trying to collect sort of a Noah's Ark of people in each of its organizations, and yet simultaneously get those people to all fit into those organizations. And what you're left with is all the discomfort and none of the benefit that you potentially get from different people. So what I talk about in Dream Teams is 
how to make that equation add up. And when you look at research, there's competing studies that are sort of depressing. We can selectively look at some, and people often do this, to make whatever argument we want. You can look at the studies that show that in boardrooms, boardrooms that have gender diversity, so men and women, make fewer terrible decisions, and their companies tend to grow faster. Uh, That's great. And so we use that as an excuse to hire lots of men and women, get parity in our organizations. But then you look at, on the ground level, companies that have gender diverse employees that are not in the board level and have racially diverse employees and generationally diverse employees. And those companies tend to have higher turnover. They tend to have more discomfort and more problems and conflict between people. And they also tend to be not as productive as groups that, as organizations that have a largely homogeneous sort of uh, work level employee base. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at those, you know, people will make one argument or another, oh, diversity doesn't work, diversity programs suck, which the research clearly shows. And then you can make the other argument, but diversity actually makes a company better, which the research also clearly shows. Mm -hmm. The difference is when you have a group of people at a board level, you have everyone, everyone there is actually bringing, bringing it. Everyone's expressing their different opinions, their different perspectives, their different ways of looking at the situations, if you've arrived at that level, you're being included fully. And those are not easy conversations you're having. You're having a lot of friction. And the thing that allows a group of men and women to do well in the boardroom is men and women generally, gender is much more complex and and nuanced than just that binary. Mm -hmm. But if you grow up being treated like a man and identifying as a man, you grow up being treated like a woman and identified as a woman, you will catalog the world a little bit differently. Your strategies for how you navigate the world will be different. My favorite example of this is actually police officers. Uh, I did this whole study in Dream Teams about police partnerships. You see the same thing. More gender diverse police partnerships and racially diverse police partnerships also tend to make better decisions, solve crimes better, and also have more tension and and (laughs) conflict. But what happens is if you grow up and say you're trained and you're in a police department where it's full of men who are all big and strong, your first approach to solving a problem might be more along the kick the door down strategy than if you are a woman, you've grown up with less upper body strength, your approach to solving that same problem might be more like find the person who has the key and compromise them. Mm -hmm. And so when you have both of those kinds of people on the team, you can suddenly do a lot more by combining those different perspectives, looking at the the solution from different angles. Mm -hmm. The other thing I, I talked about earlier, not just perspective, how you look at a problem, but heuristics, your strategy for approaching the problem. That's sort of that kick the door or, you know, or compromise the person with the key. That's really about your rules of thumb for how you approach a problem. But when you combine those things, how you look at something and how you approach it, the combination of those can allow a group to be better at solving crimes or better at making boardroom decisions. But what happens in a lot of American business is you hire all of these demographically diverse people, and then you ask them to get with the program. And so unlike in the boardroom where you have this full, engaged sort of debate between perspectives. Everybody's contributing in that case. Everyone's bringing it. Intellectually. You have at the ground level all of the sort of fear and confusion and conflict that comes from having people who are different than each other and none of the safety to speak up 
and none of the benefit of combining those different things because people aren't bringing it in a full way. Mm-hmm. Let's extrapolate this to a more you know public, broad, cultural discourse. I mean, business, of course, is very influential, but more on the political end of things. Let's go to that realm. Will Giovacchini, our videographer and currently sound man, um, he gave us a little thought piece during lunch, and he mentioned that this is a bit anecdotal, but I think it's really significant as to how we develop our beliefs. With all the popularity of murder podcasts and even TV shows these days with really brutal murders and visceral, gory scenes of things, it seems like more people, and I've actually read a piece or two about this online, more people are are changing their beliefs around the death penalty and whether, you know, that should be, you know, federally banned or allowed. And it seems like more people are kind of coming on board saying, hey, you know, these things are pretty brutal. I've never heard these descriptions before. Maybe it's something worth talking about at the very least. And I want to ask you, Shane, what your perspective on belief development is and how that can change when when you come into certain information or when you engage with certain people and perhaps how that influences the workplace and how it influences product development, project development, et cetera. So the worst thing for progress or for solving problems in novel and better ways is everyone agreeing. Mm -hmm. So having a society of people that all agree that this is the solution to this problem. We have murderers, so the solution is either death penalty or lock them away forever or some other thing. If we all agree on that, that's sort of a warning, a red flag. The debate around what we should do about that ought to continue, but it it needs to, there's a, an ingredient that needs to be there that I think is often not there in these kinds of, especially political topics, is because they're so connected to our identity. Mm-hmm. You know, politically, if one side loses, then their identity is sort of attacked, right? And so you you do anything you can, you fight dirty, you know, you make the battle not about the ideas if you're feeling like your ego is being threatened. Mm-hmm. So it's a big problem. But the ingredient that's missing is intellectual humility. You can have a debate and the most intense debate about something as important as life and death and what to do about murderers. But if no one is willing to revise their viewpoint in light of that debate, in light of new information, the world changes. And if no one's willing to think differently then what's the point? Again, all you're left with are the problems, the conflict, the hurt feelings, the ego, and none of the the new solutions and breaking new ground. And I think it's interesting that people are watching or listening to murderer podcasts and starting to change their mind on the death penalty because the stories that they're hearing about real human beings are developing some empathy or some something different is going on in their brains that are actually causing them to change. I think that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I think what we do next is the important part and the tricky part. Yeah. Um, because these are not simple issues and and there's a danger of turning these into of of oversimplifying these kind of issues. I do think that if we could all kind of break down something like the death penalty, is this something we were talking about earlier? If you could say the if-then statement is, if we know for sure the person is guilty and we know for sure that they're never going to change and they'll go on to murder again, then we have a choice. Do we kill them? And is that okay? Or do we lock them up and never let them deal with anyone and murder anyone again? Is that okay? 
But if we don't know that they're guilty, then we have a different problem. Then the choice is, are we okay with making those decisions based on incomplete information? And what kinds of crimes and what amount of sureness about whether they're guilty can justify us making one choice or another? That's when the argument and the, the debate can become very complicated. And if we turn it into something that is about our side winning the debate or our official who we've elected staying in office so the other guys don't win, if we turn it into anything like that or feeling bad if, if we're proven wrong – then we're not going to make progress. We're going to be stuck with this system that does not favor the people nor you know, protect the innocent nor deal with the problems as efficiently and effectively as we wish it would. Let's talk about dogma then. And I, I don't want to use this word in a way that's too dismissive. I think there's plenty of people believe something to the core of their being for one reason of another that in a lot of cases makes the, the sort of the, ca- the categories of si- of the situational aspects that you just described. So we know for a fact that somebody did something awful. They committed the crime. We know that there's no chance that they can be rehabilitated. Then what do we do? Do we spend the money to kill them, keep them alive? It, it, that's where with those affirmatives in place, there seems to be a good space for debate to say, is it okay to then put somebody to death? But I think there are people that automatically believe that anybody can be rehabilitated with the right amount of care. And maybe they even acknowledge that we aren't at a place as a culture yet where we know how to do that with absolutely anybody. But there are people that just believe to the core of their soul that because that there is even an iota of that possibility that nobody should be put to, to death. And then there's also people on the other side of the spectrum that, you know, I kind of grew up around that believe that absolutely, you know, eye for an eye, if somebody <laughs> blatantly kills somebody, even though it's it's over and maybe they can get better because they have committed that grand injustice, they need to suffer the same fate, especially if it was just, you know, innocent, completely innocent person getting killed, kill the, the perpetrator as well. So I think there is a, a presence of dogma. And in some cases, I think both scientists and religious people are are guilty of dogmatic thinking. And I think we can kind of get to the the debate or maybe the the reconciliation of science and religion later on too. <laughs> but for now, what do you think about that? I you know, it bothers me because if you're not willing to revise your viewpoint on something, then you're not gonna get anywhere. You might be right, but you might be wrong. And if there's two people or two groups that fully believe that they're right and leave no allowance for a third option, then you're you're going to be on a plateau. You, you're going to have to deal with the solution that you have. Mm-hmm. I think the world changes fast enough and things are different all the time uh, in a way that we can't afford to do that on any level. And that's where it does make things hard. You know, the the thing that I was thinking about is there are things that we have to kind of accept that some people, maybe maybe all of us, um, have to decide that we just have faith that this is how it is. Mm-hmm. So I, I had an astronomy professor who, you know, was a physicist who always said that, or well, at the beginning of the semester, he would say, even scientists have to have faith that the principles of physics that we can measure here actually also hold true way out there. 
we can't measure that. So we have to have faith in that. So there's some things that we just kind of have to accept. But I think when that faith in the thing that we haven't, we haven't disproven, when that turns into something that is uh, impervious to disproof, that's when it starts to make me nervous. You know, if something does disprove that the principle of science, you know, further out in space doesn't operate, if something disproves that and we say no, because I already believed it, then then what, right? I, I think that's the the tricky thing. We can hold on to things that are dear to us, but sometimes the fact that they're dear to us make us make it about us, not about the idea. But do you think that there are things that can't be disproved? Do you think that everything can be disproved? No, I mean, I, I think there are plenty of things that we can actually, the opposite, we can prove, right? Yeah. I think there are plenty of things that we can disprove and that there's some things that we'll, we may never disprove. And that's okay, but if we are just not open to it, then, yeah, then when, if it does happen, if something does get disproved or proved, then we basically are idiots. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the, the problem with some of this is the, you know, the argument turns into something that's about us. So I have a really strongly held belief in something and, you know, it can be unequivocally proven that I'm wrong but I might stick to it and make the world a little worse and make the argument worse because I don't want to change because if I change, then I have to accept that sort of bruise to my own ego. Mm -hmm. And that it's extremely hard. And I mean, once you start looking at it that way, it, it maybe gets a little bit easier, but all of us have this problem. I, as part of the course of Dream Teams, I helped develop an assessment for open-mindedness that basically took a bunch of different bits of uh, psychological research and combine them. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised and kind of mad at how low I ranked in open-mindedness when I took the <laughs> assessment. And 98% uh, of people who took this assessment, by the way, said they were more open-minded than average. Mm -hmm. So we're really bad at knowing what assumptions we have that we, uh, you know, that we're hanging on to just because that we don't want to let go of. I think with the, with, I mean, that's, to me, that's why politics sucks so bad right now is because, you know, we used to have this Hamiltonian ideal of two men with different viewpoints going into a room together and coming out with a third option, Yeah. right? And now we have two groups of, again, mostly men who have very different ideas, a lot of cognitive diversity, a lot of cognitive friction, maybe not as much as they ought to have, but they have ingredients there to come up with third options. Mm -hmm. And they are bent on destroying each other and unwilling to, it's seen as this great sin if you change your mind. You know, you get unelected and everyone's afraid to be proven wrong, even though that's the way we make progress is when we prove ourselves wrong. Hey, sorry to interrupt this conversation with Shane Snow, but I want to encourage you to learn more about his work and ideas. He shot a full workshop on teamwork and effective communication at our studio, but he did so, per usual, exclusively for MentorBox members. If you want to access that and much more, sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you want to reach out to me and offer some suggestions or thoughts on the conversation today, my email address is Tyler at MentorBox.com. Let's see who else we can bring into this conversation. All right, back to the show. I believe... And I'm pretty confident that categorically 
faith and and God and, and any sort of religious idea is undisprovable because of the way those things exist in our minds. A, a core tenet of religion is, you know, a faith in a higher power, which to me means something that we don't know and can't understand. And I, I'll say right now, you know, I am left of center. I don't identify with any particular religion, but at the end of the day, those that belief system, it it can't be refuted scientifically. And we hit this sort of scientific debate, scientific scientists versus, you know, religious zealots a lot of the time, just religion versus science. And it comes down in a very awkward way to the to the actual <laughs> political debates, even, you know, abortion and the death penalty. Those those yeah. seem to be kind of pretty dichotomous debates that exist in those two spaces. And I struggle to find you know, a, th- a third option there. I think if, <laughs> if there was one, it, this wouldn't be such a difficult debate because when you think about yeah. it, the death penalty, the ultimate argument there that really defines that debate is should somebody be killed for what they did or should they remain alive? You can say that keeping them in jail and, you know, exiled from society is like a third option but then you're advocating that we still should not kill them. You're you're saying, you know, we need to keep them alive somehow. And that puts you on one side of that debate. Whereas in the the pro-life, pro-choice debate, it's very similar. It's is that can that baby life form is is it meant to survive versus can somebody else make that decision right. about that Who's, life? And and there's if you say there's anything in between, you know, you you have the choice. And that's why it's called pro-choice, I guess. Right. <laughs> it, right. Whose choice should it be? You know, what's exactly. interesting about both of those is there are elements of each of them that we can prove or disprove facets of it to make the debate more uh, appropriate or more nuanced or, or still push it forward. So science can help us to understand what exactly is going on in the brain and biology of an unborn fetus and we can the more we learn about that process the more that we can have a a more measured debate about what to do and all that but there are things that i I do think you're right that are kind of fundamental impasses Mm -hmm. who has the right to choose what happens to another life yeah um but then i think the other rub is how do we define a life and of course that ends up coming down to what i would argue is dogma as well because some people say based on faith, you know, it starts at conception, that sort of thing. And scientifically, if you if you try to use science to support any argument there, you're still coming down to semantics. You're saying this is at the point where something change from changes from one existence to another. So from yeah. a sperm, egg, whatever it is, to something else. It becomes one thing and it becomes another, and we assign that transition life. We say what that is. We always have the choice as to what that is because it's an arbitrary term. Right. So, well, both polar sides of that argument, it strikes me that there's a lack of intellectual humility. That if if the side that very strongly believes that life begins at conception and that that is, you know, an unalterable truth if they if there's no room for them to change their mind about that, mm-hmm. then yeah, this is a really hard debate. But also, if there's no room for the other side to say 
maybe that's possible. What if science could prove that that, you know, life does, we can figure out the, what, how to define life. And if we proved that, science proved that, would we then be on board with, with that fact? And I, I think a lot of people are not open to either one. But I don't think that's possible. That, that's what I'm saying here. Is yeah, that yeah. I don't think science can, has the ability to make that determination because all of science is conducted from within a framework that we create, which is language, the scientific process, all those things. We're still putting an, our own you know, footprint on this determination by saying these are the steps and the language and the identifiers and the symbols that we use to give meaning to things. Yeah. So in that case, doesn't that it you know it comes down to faith and what and what faith allows because it it doesn't ask for that sort of thing. But I think that can be scary. <laughs> so it, yeah, right. We're we're getting to like the zero point. I mean, life yeah. and death is sort of the you know where the map ends, right? And we go off the edge. The way that I think about these kinds of issues is from the standpoint of negative externalities. And I think this is an important way to think about teamwork and and working with other people as well. Allowing other people to operate, to live, to be, to think how they want up to the point that that becomes, that that takes away from someone else's ability to operate, be, and think how they want. So I think that there's kind of this false thing out there around tolerance that we should be tolerant of everyone but should we be tolerant of the person who is murdering people, mm-hmm. right? There's a, a threshold at which what someone is doing is actually infringing on someone else's things. So, you know, with a lot of these debates, we're not leaving room for other people to believe what they want to believe or to behave the way that they want to behave. If you believe something that I think is crazy, that's okay. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't then... I don't know, pollute on my land or murder me, right? As long as you don't do something with that belief that then infringes on my ability to believe. And I think that's a lot of these kinds of debates. So abortion is really interesting because on one side you could say there's no negative externality to uh, aborting a baby. In fact, you could say that there's a negative externality to giving birth to a baby that's unwanted, that baby is going to grow up in a system, going to be a burden on the system, be more likely to become a criminal, that you could make that argument. I think people on the other side would flagrantly disagree, though. They'd say sure. because that baby could become somebody. President really, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Gandhi. Right. So, But you can make an argument on either side of that. But I think that debate is more interesting. And before, just to, before we move along, I want to just identify myself here. I'm, I'm not pro-life. I lean more pro-choice. I think that one of the key things that we should think about here is who do these things most directly impact and all these issues that we're talking about. And as far as I can tell, abortion and birth affect women most directly. It, it is a an issue of family as well at some point, but because it is primarily a woman's issue, I'm glad was, to leave that to women as well. I was going to well. say for me, yeah, because it's not my choice and the impact yeah, you know, uh, it's that I I don't feel comfortable participating in in the actual debate of that. Maybe talking about the parameters of the debate. Yeah, I think as as a, a couple of men on this yeah. podcast right here, might as well give a disclaimer. Yeah, I, you know, it's it it's it's never going to be my choice. If it's you know part of my family or whatever, mm-hmm. then being supportive. But at the end of the day, 
whether we deem it legal, illegal or not, I actually think I should not be allowed to weigh in on the legality of that because, again, it's not my choice. That's how I feel, too. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad we, we cleared that up a little <laughs> bit. So I, I want to finish up with, with one more question, which is to circle back around to dream teams and, and to stick with the morality and maybe political debate a little bit. In the workplace, this sort of discussion is not always encouraged and, you know, political diversity isn't a bad thing, I would argue. But again, I think about the origin of the institutions and being that we've established who that, are, who that is, especially in, you know, tech and business, academia, wherever, it's largely a monolithic population. It's usually men like you and I, white men. That means to me that the voices that are missing from those spaces are the ones that don't look like that. And in the case of, you know, birth and abortion, you know, it's certain people are impacted most directly, in that case, women. In the case of products that are released to the world, what we've seen is that the people who are impacted most directly in a negative way are those that don't fit that sort of normative group that created that mm-hmm. institution. So racism on Airbnb's part, um, just the people, you know, deciding who can and cannot sleep in their space. Facebook ads being targeted towards specific groups in that way. Um, Uber kind of having some oversights. I've talked about these things a lot with the last few authors that we've had in. How do you feel about political diversity in the workplace and how do you make the space open to not... do, Do you think it belongs in conversation in the workplace and how do you safely foster it? Well, I was going to say, I feel safe having this conversation with you mm-hmm. because we've developed a rapport one-on-one. We, you know, we're doing this podcast. We're talking about ideas. I don't feel under attack. So I feel like, and there's no power dynamic between us, right? I suppose maybe you could edit my words and <laughs> make me look like a jerk, but, uh, but no, there's no power dynamic. So I feel safe. It's not often the case in the workplace in talking about certain topics. And that itself is a problem. But when I think about... You know, talking about the institutions, talking about the kinds of people and the kinds of things that they can talk about that are shaping our culture and our products and our companies um, and who we need to make room for. I do think that the exercise needs to be, we need to start in order of priority of relevance, mm-hmm. right? If you're making decision, making the decision of whether to, you know, uh, level a town, right? Say you're going to level a town to make room for, I don't know a mall, okay? The people whose houses are going to be leveled need to be part of this process. Yes. And uh, and so often, you know, often we leave the actual constituents out, the actual people affected by our, our decision. We leave them out of the decision process. We should pull someone in from that town before we make the decision. I think that's one. I think another is when you're looking at the kinds of diversity that a team needs to make good decisions, you ought to be inclusive of as many perspectives as you can along the things that are relevant and be aware of when you have a lot of one perspective along some dimension that you don't need any more of, right? So when you're thinking about that carefully, the question becomes, is political viewpoint diversity, say specifically in America, left versus right and along that spectrum, is that the most important kind of diversity that we are lacking in our thinking for the problems that we're trying to solve? 
And I think what you're getting at is often that's way down the list. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you <laughs> it's know. It's pretty far down in my personal opinion. We're, we're making telephones. Do we need Democrats and Republicans to weigh in? Or do we need men and women to weigh in? Pick the men and women dimension of, of diversity. Mm-hmm. So, but I, you know, so you, you get down the list and you're not being... I think we'd be dumb to say that this is the biggest problem we have in diversity. It's like, oh, boo-hoo, someone on the far left or someone on the far right is not being included when we're working on problems that that's not as relevant. And I want to jump in. I think it's important to recognize that we see those two viewpoints everywhere already because it is the primary debate that exists in our Mm – I mean, it is the political debate. And that's what's televised and all that. And that does, you know, boil down to gender as a a pretty, you know, divided – yeah, uh, spectrum there, and even race and thoughts on race. Those it informs are, our decisions around all of those things. Yes, right? of course. But at the end of the day, we are we're seeing those political debates all the time. So it's we're it's not like we're unaware of what's going on on the left and the right. But because we we aren't getting the full picture from the viewpoints of maybe women in a certain industry or maybe people of color in a certain industry, then we aren't that we aren't actually understanding what their perspective is because like you said earlier, those politicians don't always reflect those people. So I think because of that, (laughs) right. We're taking in lots of stories of different political viewpoints. We're taking in fewer stories and building less empathy of of people for people who live different than us in other ways. So there's a really interesting study that I wrote about the group of researchers put people together to solve murder mysteries. So they give you this scenario, they put you in a group to solve murder mystery and, and there's kind of two ways they did this study. I think there might have been two different groups, but both of them were murder mysteries. The first was you're in a group with members of your own fraternity in college. Mm-hmm. And then and you're working on the murder mystery, and halfway through, someone else joins the group. And that person is either from your fraternity or from a rival fraternity. It turns out that the groups who had the rival fraternity member join their group halfway through came up with the answer to the murder mystery at a higher rate, a higher percentage of the time they came up with the right answer. They came up with better answers almost universally when that happened. And uh, even though it wasn't about fraternities, it was about murder, uh, <laughs> which, you know, we're coming full circle now. They did the same thing with uh, Democrats and Republicans. Oh. They said, uh, You're, here's a murder mystery case. Prepare to come debate someone tomorrow about what you think the answer to the murder mystery is. And by the way, that person is, and they'll say either Democrat or Republican. What they found is that Democrats that were debating Democrats came up with good arguments. They, they were normal. But Democrats that knew they'd be debating a Republican actually came up with better arguments. And that vice versa was true. Then when you were put in a scenario where you had to basically work out a solution with someone who disagreed with you along that other spectrum, you it I forget exactly the way that they put it, but... You worked a little bit harder cognitively to come up with creative ways at getting at this problem. Mm-hmm. So there is something interesting about being put in a group where you know that you don't all think the same that causes you to actually think a little bit harder yeah. about how you're thinking. So I think that actually is kind of important. I think making it, certainly making it safe for someone to have their own viewpoint mm-hmm. uh, is good. And maybe making it known that people have their own viewpoint is good because it causes us all to be jolted into cognitive action. The thing that I think is the the yellow blinking light that we need to be aware of is when the political viewpoint debate 
basically boils over into that kind of negative externality. When Mm -hmm. someone's viewpoint actually infringes on someone else's ability to be themselves and to, to do their best work. And we're kind of afraid of worse, you know, advocates for removing them from a space or a society. Right. Right. That's not good. Seeing today, unfortunately. And that's the kind of viewpoint that I think is it's along the lines of, do we invite the flat earthers or the murderers to the, you know, the table? Mm -hmm. I think at a certain point, the moral choice is no, but I think that, you know, that we shouldn't set our thresholds so strictly that we don't allow for people who simply just disagree with us along things that are still up for debate. Mm-hmm. But if there are things that we as a society have decided that from a moral standpoint are not up for debate, we don't want rapists, you know, making decisions about child molestation laws, we want them in jail, mm-hmm. then, you know, that's a different thing. But saying, oh, if you don't, if you didn't vote for this candidate or you don't believe about this on this political issue, you have no place here. We're going to make you feel bad. You're just getting that environment of fear and not the potential of someone who believes something else to tell you something that could help change the game. Mm-hmm. Whew, well, <laughs> this is a fun conversation, Shane. <laughs> it's interesting because this is not the kind of thing that I have been talking about with this book so much, but I do think that the the principles that make a team of people working on you know, a business project amazing, the things that make that kind of team amazing and not stall or not fall apart are the same underlying principles that can make our society amazing or hard to live in. Well, when you think about it, and some of the things that I mentioned earlier, Uber is a great example. Emily Chang talks about that a lot. If you screw something up big because of a culture issue like this, or because you had an oversight that just missed one category of person's perspective, it can screw things up. It, it can, can set really your company back seriously and you can lose a CEO because he wasn't a great person and you just didn't quite realize it because other people, because the whole company was just people like him kind of right. allowing the, you know, Travis Kalanick Uber, right. allowing that sort of behavior, toxic behavior to just keep going. But when you start from the beginning with that diversity, you're less likely to hit those things. And that means that if you're looking for this big, you know, world changing product to really capture the attention of a nation then you're probably going to be safer if you do reach that level. Yeah, you don't want blind spots. That's the last thing you want when mm-hmm. you know everything's on the line. Of course. Okay, well, I think we can wrap it up there. This was yeah. <laughs> this is fun. Yeah. This was fun. Uh, what are the other books that you have? So, Smart Cuts was my first one. It's about lateral thinking. It's a, kind of about this idea of you can't uh, make breakthrough progress by playing the same game. You make it by playing a different game, mm-hmm. uh, which becomes sort of the primary excuse for dream teams, which is that how we change the game, how we make those leaps is by combining different perspectives and heuristics. In between those books, I wrote a book called The Storytelling Edge, which is about the science of stories and how we build relationships and make people care by uh, by telling stories, by learning each other's stories. Great. And ShaneSnow.com? That's me. Okay. And at Shane Snow on, on all the things. All the things. Okay, yeah. great. Well, thank you everybody else for for tuning in today and listening to this rather exhausting conversation. (laughs) Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned a thing or two. We will see you on the next episode. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at mentorbox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, 
please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.